How is it possible that it's already August? We hope you are enjoying your summer. Back by popular demand is our AirPods Pro giveaway. Members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts, which you get by becoming a member. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of August, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code BONUSCONTENT, one word, at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code Bonus content. Thank you for your support. Hello, I'm Riley Fessler, producer of the DSR Network of Podcasts. In the wake of the first Republican debate for 2024, today's From the Silo takes you back to October of last year, with Norman Cavita discussing the debates from across the country during the midterms. The episode also features originally members only content, so if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a member. Enjoy. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. And if there's a glitch in his performance, that could have huge implications. And Dr. Kavita Patel. That first minute, the kind of the words you choose say a lot about you. Hello, and welcome to the Words Matter podcast from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms, which are ever closer, and what our leaders are saying or not saying and doing about them. Today we have a jam-packed episode. We're going to try to hit some of the recent debates and what that says about the upcoming midterms. A little bit of tea leave reading, if you don't mind, Norm. And we'll touch on the Marco Rubio-Valdemings debate. We might slip in a little bit more from the J.D. Vance-Tim Ryan debate. And then if we have enough time, we can weave in whether debates even really matter. And in our bonus content for members, We're going to carry over the theme of what matters in midterms and talk about the economy and inflation, especially in light of the fact that Liz Truss, prime minister of the UK, just resigned. And on the heels of that, looking through the eyes of the globe, we protest in France and we have a number of other reasons, even just locally in the United States, to talk about the discontent with the economy. Will all that timing matter for the midterms? All right. So, Norm. I loaded it up on the front end. We've got quite a bit of uh, territory to cover. Reading the coverage of the debates in general, I walked away and I'm curious what your take was, and then we can dive into Demings and Rubio. I came away, Norm, thinking if I were a voter who was trying to kind of assess what the state of our politics are and are these politicians going to actually get me, I actually had no confidence in anybody (laughs) because it felt like In some cases, Herschel Walker's, for example, it was theater, J.D. Vance, where you saw Tim Ryan do an incredible job, yet you still see polls kind of showing a very narrow race. And then even just the Demings-Rubio debate, I'm not a Floridian, where I thought she made incredibly sound policy points, particularly on gun control, which we'll get into. Not sure she got rewarded for it. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if maybe I'm just looking for too much, Norm, but Tell me your take on, do the debates even, well, we can get into the debates mattering. Tell me your take in general, and then maybe uh, your highlights from the Demings-Rubio debate. Well, the Demings-Rubio debate, I think, is a a great example of a few things. I would say, 
by any reasonable standard, Val Demings just eviscerated Marco Rubio. Rubio repeated talking points over and over. One of the weakest moments for him was when the debate moderator noted that after the Sandy Hook shooting, Rubio had said, we need to restrict assault weapons sales to those under 18. And Rubio was asked if he continued to believe that. And he just repeated a bunch of NRA talking points, making it clear he would not repeat that, even though Florida itself has implemented an assault weapons ban on those under 18. And Demings came back and basically made a few points that are relevant not just for Marco Rubio, but more generally. She went through all of the disasters that we've had in the last decade. Kindergartners, first graders, second graders, sixth graders, high schoolers. The Pulse nightclub was in her district, going through all of those things. And she said, all of that, and what have you done? Nothing. And as a former police officer for a long time, she talked about crime in terms of gun violence and the refusal to do anything about gun violence. And it was, I thought, in many ways, a template for Democrats and how you want to handle the crime issue, where they're being hurt right now. Because even though you'd have a trace element of Democrats who've said defund the police, they're being stuck with that slogan and they're not responding well. But let's go back to what that debate meant. And you saw a strong, confident, articulate performance from Val Demings. You saw a weak and uncertain rote performance by Marco Rubio, and I doubt it will make any difference at all, and that reflects our larger problem, Kavita, which is in this age of tribalism, and it's more true, the fact is, of Republicans than it is of Democrats, so many voters don't care whether their candidate is adult or a crook or somebody who is way too radical and unfit for public office, if it's one of theirs, they're going to support them. So whatever value debates used to have at the state and local level, I think they still have value at the presidential level, but whatever value they have at the state and local level, in so many instances has been devalued or watered down or diluted because it's more theater and it's not going to sway that many voters. Now, maybe it will help. And certainly we've seen in Ohio, Tim Ryan gain at least a little bit of ground after the debates. But it's hard for me to imagine that these are game changers now, even though they should be game changers because they unmask the awful character of many of these candidates, incumbent or challenger. I think that uh, unmasking is exactly the right point. And, you know, it used to be that debates, even the ones where they've got the time limitation on responses down to a minute, what can someone say in a minute? That first minute, the kind of the words you choose say a lot about you. It's why we call this podcast Words Matter. Here's some words from Marco Rubio. In the two terms I've been there, no U.S. senator has gotten more done than I have, Rubio said. The only thing Demings has done is vote 100% with Pelosi. Further, he kind of doubles down and he asked, was asked by the moderator, would he accept the results of the 2022 election? And he said, sure, because I'm going to win. And so I think that in these snippets, you get exactly 
this is what people, this is not just what you're, what they're really thinking. And, and by the way, it was funny on, I was like, what's wrong with a hundred percent vote with Nancy Pelosi? There's nothing wrong with that. But putting that a point aside, these are still people who have many of their voters and supporters, including Marco Rubio's supporters, who still are debating the 2020 election. So we have, I think, so many layers of unmasking that needs that has been done, needs to be done. Tell me then, just maybe shifting gears a little bit to some of the debates that we're looking forward to. There's a lot on the line in some of these debates, such as the Fetterman and Oz debate, because I think in the last 48 hours, some significant, just I would say humblings, his personal physician putting out a statement, making it very clear that he's still in the thick of this stroke recovery. Fetterman himself talking about this being kind of the one of the worst things that's happened to him, that he's still in this like state of emergency and describing very, I think, in good humbling detail what he's struggling with and how he has coped on the election circuit. But I do think that there, because of all of what has led up to it, this could be a debate that matters. What's your take, Norm? I absolutely do think that this debate matters because for a variety of reasons, some of them Fetterman caused, others the desperation of Dr. Oz and his campaign. Uh, Fetterman's stroke and uh, the question of whether he's capable of serving has become a huge issue. And frankly, it was exacerbated by the absolutely outrageous piece that NBC Nightly News did on him that was basically an attack on a disability and an ignorant attack on a disability. But it's a reality. And the reality is that Fetterman, as he has said, and it's something that happens with a whole lot of stroke victims, has a lagging effect of auditory processing issues where he can't understand uh, questions offered verbally. He uses closed captioning. If uh, it doesn't affect his mental acuity, uh, his ability to do things, we've had others who've served in the Senate with strokes who did just fine. But there are questions that voters are going to have here. And this will be the occasion, even though he's been out on the campaign trail, he's done a number of interviews. Doing a debate, I think it's going to get more attention than most debates do. And the focus is not going to be as I would like it to be on the qualities of these two candidates, including the fact that Dr. Oz is not just a New Jersey guy and not a Pennsylvania guy, not just a guy who couldn't even tell you how many homes he owns and lied about it, and not just a guy who's basically and fundamentally been a snake oil salesman and is a puppy killer, but it's going to be about whether Fetterman is capable of serving. And if there's a glitch in his performance, that could have huge implications in a race that has tightened a lot. So this debate matters in a way that a lot of the others don't. I will say there was uh, probably the, the debates I did watch, I'll call it, and I forgot to mention Mike Lee. How could we forget the pocket constitution, Norm? So you had J.D. Vance, who did everything possible to dodge when Tim Ryan uh, said that J.D. Vance had once described Trump as America's Hitler. It was, you know, J.D. Vance kind of giving this like petulant, childish response. You know, that's not true. All the way to Mike Lee using basically a pocket constitution as a prop to say, if I wave around said pocket constitution, 
Therefore, I do not have to deal with my secret text to overthrow the election plot with Mark Meadows. And then Herschel Walker rounding it out with basically like a, what, a fake sheriff's badge or some sort of toy that he brought with him. You have to admit, like even put aside political uh, leanings, there should have been no question that th- these were losers in their debates, Le- not just even like slight losers, big losers. And again, not only does it not matter, I actually think there's a non-trivial number of people where that might get them out to vote, which is, I think, exactly as we think through what the next several weeks could look like, because it does come down to the next several weeks and what matters to people. It's about getting them to come out and vote on November 8th. So uh, I can't resist. Now I'm going to move this camera up there on the wall is my official Kentucky Colonel certificate which I got when I gave a a talk uh, to the Kentucky legislature. It was uh, signed by then-Governor Matt Bevan, who I suspect if he'd had any idea who he was, would have refused to sign it. And of course, it's uh, one of these symbolic things. But my response after Herschel Walker put out his fake badge and said, I'm in law enforcement, I'm a sheriff, you know, my response was, well, I'm a Kentucky colonel, so I'll take over the Kentucky National Guard. And of course, we've seen all of these pictures of these little uh, uh, pilot wings that kids get when they go on an airplane, people saying we're pilots. People make fun of him, and uh, yet it hasn't made any difference at all. And the spectacle after that debate of seeing Tim Scott appearing with Herschel Walker and Lindsey Graham talking about what a smart, capable guy he is. It's cringeworthy, but the only thing that might matter is not the debate itself. It's Walker's lies about whether he paid for an abortion. And of course, his latest lie was, well, I gave her money, but that was to provide support for the kid that we actually did have together, when of course the abortion took place years before he actually had that kid. So lying doesn't matter either anymore. Now with Mike Lee, That is something that's worth talking about a little bit, Kavita, because Democrats did not put up a candidate in Utah, understanding that in this firmly Republican state, they had zero chance. And they let Evan McMullen, a longtime Republican, a man with great service to the country, the intelligence world, military figure, a conservative Mormon take the field as an independent, and run against Mike Lee. And the polls have shown that Evan McMullen is within striking distance. What Lee tried to do, even as he was waving around his prop constitution, or his constitution as a prop, was to say, you're the candidate of Democrats, and you're this liberal. I doubt very much that that will work. Lee's polls have been in the mid to low 40s, which is not a good sign for an incumbent. And one of the critical questions here is, if Evan McMullen wins, it's earth-shattering. It suggests that there are at least possibilities to run against these Trumpist radicals, including running as an independent conservative. But we don't know what Evan McMullen would do in the Senate when it comes to who would be in the majority if it's a close margin. He said he won't caucus with either party, but he's still going to vote for a majority leader. And it's hard for me to imagine that Evan McMullen would vote for Mitch McConnell as majority leader. So it's, it's possible, at least, that that's a debate 
where he showed himself very well, where McMullen might be able to uh, prevail. I think it reminds me, I have to say something, in the after, kind of, Herschel Walker actually had, like, one of his best fundraising days, kind of in that aftermath of those revelations, something, I want to say, over half a million dollars, kind of in a one slug uh, in a 24-hour period after the, kind of, the what came to surface about paying for a former girlfriend's abortion. If that doesn't make you sick to your stomach, it's, it's, just they keep digging themselves deeper. I think after his debate, Walker, when questioned about his fake badge, actually offered this replicas of it as a fundraising tool itself. So this is, I think, where we're circling, Norm, and we can talk a little bit more, if you will, about how I think that this is not just exposing some of the moral emptiness you know, of the GOP agenda, but something that Peter Weiner in The Atlantic wrote that I'm just going to read, which I thought hit the nail on the head. Politics is purely performative, nasty and brutish, a way to stoke anger and grievances, a means to exact vengeance. And, you know, there's part of me that I wanted to disagree with Peter, because for me, the the idea of politics is kind of the ultimate American dream, the democracy playing out with anybody, anybody can come to the table, crazy or not, come to the table and say or have something and see if it resonates with people. What do you think of Peter's quote there? And especially in light of what we were just talking about, Democrats not putting up a candidate, having GOP candidates that the GOP still putting money into. What do you think this does say about politics? And, and what does it mean in this day and age? Is it, is it purely performative, as Peter lays out? I'm not sure I would go entirely that far that it's purely performative. Is it largely performative now? Is it largely about stoking up anger in groups? Yeah. Again, that's somewhat asymmetric, but it's a reality right now. And unfortunately, what we've seen is, I think, a couple of elements that are unsettling. One we talked about earlier, which is that if you're not in an election campaign, at least to some degree, even if it's through the prism of your own partisanship, evaluating candidates and looking at whether they're up to the job, looking at who has the qualities that would best represent your district or state and be in this position of making policy for the entire country. And instead, you reward lies and perfidy and awful things. That's not a good sign. If you're not able to evaluate in a campaign whether somebody is right for the job or wrong for the job, democracy is in a bad place. But the second part and point is even more unsettling, which is democracy is in a bad place when you have A, large numbers of voters who say, yeah, maybe the democracy is threatened, but it's not going to matter that much to me. And they're not voting on that basis. And some of that is, I'll come back to my favorite hobby horse, a a mainstream media that treats it as just another typical campaign and doesn't point out the consequences for our democracy of what the 2022 election means for the future, for 2024 and beyond. And what we also know, which is that a third or more of Americans say that they would prefer 
a stronger leader who is not elected to a weaker leader who is, indicating that the attachment to the fundamentals of democracy is significantly weaker in the society than it ought to be and then we need it to be. And that itself is a clear and present danger to our future. So you know what, let's just jump into one more debate. We've been doing a lot of the uh, national spotlight. Let's go to Arizona, Carrie Lake and Katie Hobbs. I think a lot of reasons I think we've looked at this uh, Arizona governor's race and and uh, Carrie Lake, who arguably is the Donald Trump arena's chief gladiator in charge of basically refusing to commit to accept the November election, <laughs> a complete, not just an election denier, it seems to be a democracy denier for all uh, purposes. But you've got Katie Hobbs, again, speaking to this kind of performative piece, the refusal to debate, and now in the dwindling kind of weeks before the election, this is less about the ideas, and but ma- now it's about these high-risk tactics. And Lake, who actually lends herself to this because she's a former TV anchor, so she's got these skills, Norm, to kind of appeal to people like on the air and in her ads and some of these appearances. And Hobbs, who's running, like what, you know, if, if I, as the doctor in the room, I would say, Let, let's check for a heartbeat. Let's check for a heartbeat. That's You've got this contrast. Talk about that one, because this has a huge ramification for 2024 for the national election, potentially. Boy, it certainly does. And, you know, I know Katie Hobbs some uh, because she's been the secretary of state in Arizona and she's been tough, strong, honest, absolutely superb in that role. Uh, uh, When she won that nomination, I was excited and heartened because I thought she has the potential to be just a terrific governor but she has not run a strong campaign by any standard. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I have a friend in Chicago, a longtime journalist, former journalist, wrote quite a good book on Congress named Michael Golden, who has a blog and does some other things. And he wrote a long piece. Uh, He had worked with Carrie Lake years ago when she was a moderate Democrat and smart, articulate, all of those things. But he said she is a shapeshifter. She will say or do anything, but now she's taken positions that move to a radical extreme. When she was asked about whether she would accept the results of this election, as you indicated earlier, Kavita, she said, well, of course, I'll accept them if I win, which was echoed what Donald Trump had said before. But she is very skilled. And Arizona is an extremely difficult state. It's it's purple now. Biden won by, you know, 12,000 or so votes. But it's not just Carrie Lake who could be governor. It's a crazy election denier who could be their secretary of state. We could see a radical as attorney general. And that means that the results in 2024, as you suggest, wouldn't matter because Carrie Lake wouldn't accept them if a Democrat won. So the consequences of these elections, not just for the House and Senate, but for governorships, for secretaries of state positions, even state legislatures, are profound this time, and they're not being viewed that way. And that's one we have to be very worried about. Now, on the other hand, Mark Kelly appears to be winning comfortably against another Trumpist, uh, Blake Masters, and he performed extraordinarily well in the debate and 
whether it matters or not, the fact is he's highly regarded in the state. And so I think that's pretty safe for Democrats. But the governorship is huge. Yeah. And I do think that it's been interesting because when Hobbs has been pressed on this, she actually said something that we said up top. She said, let me read here. She said, I guarantee you that people who are struggling in Arizona right now are not making their decisions over whether or not there was a debate between myself and Carrie Lake. And so I I actually kind of think, you know, she's right to a point, but now it's become such an exposed, you know, there was these protesters outside of one of her meetings wearing a chicken suit. Like it's, it spills over into what was once probably a reasonable posture to take with somebody whom you wouldn't even want to dignify by sharing a stage because they won't even admit that the 2020 election was real. Then I can see that, but then it tilts over into now we're making a spectacle out of this and it could potentially, again, this is all about voter turnout. We've learned that this is not largely going to be a midterms of, well, there were all these just new millions of voters and they just came out of nowhere and we brought them out. This is likely going to be, these are registered voters in their respective parties who actually showed up and just showed up by a bare thin margin is what we're talking about in many of these elections. Yeah, and I, I do think the refusal to debate is a potentially uh, significant vulnerability because it can be exploited, as you just said. And she has not handled that well. I frankly would have urged her to debate because I think she could have, no matter how smooth Carrie Lake is, really put back on her the reality of her extreme positions. But now, you know, it's too late for that. and. The real question in Arizona, as in so many other places, is the suburban college-educated voters, Maricopa County, uh, the biggest county in the state, the suburban voters around both Phoenix and Tucson, how much will the abortion issue matter to them? How much will they turn out? How much do they understand and will be turned off by the outrageous radicalism of what's happened to the Republican Party in Arizona? which has been defined by people like Paul Gosar, Andy Biggs, some of the most radical extremist insurrectionists uh, in politics today. Much to discuss that we can look forward to, especially as we're kind of closing in on, on those November 8th elections. So with that, I want to thank our listeners and have you It'd be very helpful if you, if you could rate, review, subscribe to this feed on your favorite podcast player. And if you can, have you share this episode with your friends on social media. And if you want to and get more of our discussion, which we're going to do with our members-only network, become a member of the DSR network. It's not even a pumpkin spice latte, and you can get a bonus segment where we're going to speak about, amongst other things, kind of this global view of inflation, the recession, near recession, the economy, and what really matters as we're getting closer to elections, that there might be some distance between the abortion conversation to put inflation and the economy at the forefront of what's on voters' minds. I want to give a shout out, of course, to our executive producer of the DSR Network, Chris Cotnor, and our lovely producer, Grant Haver. The next episode of Words Matter will be in your podcast feeds on October 27th. See you then. our members-only segment of Words Matter, where Norm and I are going to spend some time talking about the issues that are bringing people or not bringing people to the election booths. 
there has been a shift norm in the not just supported by public polling, but I'll tell you that even in just conversations with friends in other states and kind of where there are some tense elections, friends have made a comment to me, and these are people who have kind of fought their lives for reproductive justice. They said, Kavita, you know, the reproductive justice issue is certainly important, but it feels like it's less important, that there's a lot of conversations about the gas prices, lots more conversations about what Biden's doing on inflation or releasing the oil reserves. I think this is probably giving the public a bit more credit. There is, I'm not sure regular people realize what he did with the strategic oil reserve. Maybe they do, but certainly voters might. So talk about how you see some of these issues, not just kind of coming to the top, but potentially pushing all the other ones that we've spoken about, what we saw as the tailwind in Kansas, what we know to be true with women and men coming out to vote on reproductive justice alone. Talk about that. And then we can talk about the global view, because uh, I'll say personally, I was a little surprised when Liz Truss announced her resignation. And we can speak about what that forecasts for the United States. So let's uh, talk for a bit, a minute or two about the abortion issue. And we had another instance of a preteen raped by a relative pregnant having to move from Florida, unable to get uh, an abortion. We've had case after case of women bleeding, suffering, life-threatening illnesses. In uh, one instance, a woman who called her state legislature, state legislator for help, and was referred to an anti-abortion site by him and ended up going out of state. You know, in a lot of cases, the travel alone, getting in a car, if you're bleeding, if you have a dead fetus inside you is, as you know, potentially threatening itself. And we still have a question of, as these stories continue to emerge, how much will it shock people, especially women whose lives or the lives of their own children are endangered? How much will it motivate them to vote? And we don't have the answer now. We don't know how much that will dominate. We do know that there's a large amount of unsettled angst throughout the Western world, as we say. It's actually throughout the globe. And I think what we can't emphasize enough is we've gone from all the dislocation that the pandemic caused now to the burdens that are there with inflation and an uneasy economy. And we see. You know, Liz Truss's problem were more because of what Liz Truss did and the degree to which she alienated her own party members than the economic issues out there. But the economic issues are what drove it. Her response, which took the British economy and sent it into an even further tailspin. But we've seen these huge demonstrations in France over gas prices. We saw what happened in Italy with the election of a far right prime minister where the economic issue and the uh, immigration issue combined to make a difference. It's a threat to democracy generally, as people go from one upheaval to another, and without any confidence or sense that their leaders are keeping matters uh, under control. Now, I, I just a comment on Liz Truss, who, by all accounts, from the moment she gave her first speech to the Conservative Party uh, gathering, seemed utterly unfit for this job. And it was clear that the people who knew her best, her conservative party MP colleagues, 
knew that she was not the right choice for this, but they didn't make the choice. It was rank and file conservative party members. What I also know is I'm uh, casual friends with Kim Campbell, who is a very bright and capable Canadian woman who served as prime minister for six months. That was the shortest tenure that they had seen. And there were some issues and gaffes and problems and all of that. But it leads me to believe, given that Boris Johnson held on for a very long period of time, that if you're a woman leader, the leash is shorter and the tolerance is less. Having said that, she's clearly awful at the, what she was doing. It's a surprise that she left so quickly, but it's a sign of the turmoil out there and the public willingness to throw the ins out and bring the outs in, no matter who the outs are. And that's of real consequence to us here. And you know, as we were talking earlier too, the template for economic woes and inflation is gas prices. And we're, we have to watch very carefully to see what happens over the next two weeks or so in terms of price at the pump. If it shoots up significantly, then we've got a real headache on our hands leading to a November 8th. Something on Liz Truss that, uh, as you were speaking about it, occurred to me, you know, one of the things she did, it was last week, I believe, was that she fired kind of their exchequer and their equivalent of like their secretary of treasury, brought in someone very familiar to the banking industry and to the kind of economic elite, Jeremy Hunt. And it was interesting to me that that was something he ran on, it was several days before her resignation. They ran kind of a joint press conference where he was clearly, I mean, Norm, I, I listened to it on the BBC, didn't see the visuals, but I could almost imagine these visuals where he was kind of doing command and control. There seemed to be this very smooth confidence that he had because he's very comfortable in these kind of complex organizations and tough settings. And then when the reporters kind of turned questions to her, it was like, do you believe that you should be fired? You know, should you be sacked because you didn't fulfill your campaign promises? I can't help. There, there's nothing about Liz Trust that I have sympathy for as a prime minister. But there was part of me that thought, what an amazing irony that the man she brought in is going to have a much longer shelf life than she did. And how different would this conversation be if she weren't a woman? And I say that because the United States is still waiting, ever so waiting, for its first female president. And I've always kind of said that, you know, this will be the next election, the next election. Not sure our country is ready for it. And you watch what they did to, you know, trust. And I would say that they would certainly be comfortable doing the same thing here. I could even imagine a female president and, you know, imagine having like a Tim Geithner and having these people very familiar around her. And I could see that exact same kind of breaking away at the trust. But anyway, it's not uh, has nothing to do with the politics of Liz Trust. But I do think there's some interesting dynamics. I also think that country, like many, France included, are at such a breaking point because of you know workers who are so upset and disenchanted and walking out of the oil refineries in France and the strike for pay hikes. You know, if you take what's happened in the railroad workers union and the still ongoing kind of issues they have with safety and getting sick pay, it's just same issues here. We just haven't come quite yet to that bubbling point, but we're, we're getting closer. We are. And I think what we can say is that these are dangerous times. And, you know, we will focus more as we go down the road on uh, 
the, the first woman president and when it happens. But, you know, we could end by noting that Democrats at some point are going to have a dilemma if Joe Biden doesn't run and there's a wide open nomination process. And if Democrats chose a man over not just Kamala Harris, but the other women running, especially in the aftermath of Dobbs, it's going to be a big, big problem. And Norm, I'm going to I'm going to end with this. I was at a I don't go to dinners, you know, I'm a little bit of like a social, anti-social hermit, but I did go to a very close colleague's dinner who is very prominent in the Democratic Party, and there were incredibly well-known Democratic names, about 12 to 14 of us around a table. I actually think they invited me so I could offer medical advice because everybody kept asking me, everybody kept asking me about COVID. But anyway, 14 people. At the end of dinner, Our host asked a question and said, you know, Chatham's rules, so obviously I'm not going to attribute any of this, went around and asked, like, so if Biden can't run, who would be your ideal candidate? Doesn't matter what the reality of it is, who's your ideal candidate? Not one mentioned, not just Kamala Harris, but not one mentioned a woman. And I kind of stopped. And when when he got around to me, honestly, I was at, I I kind of did a little bit of like, well, I think Biden's going to run, so I'm not sure this exercise is worth doing. And then I, for the sake, after having listened to everybody and being the person that could go last, I said Kamala Harris. And and there's, I think a year ago, I really believed it. And today, I'm not sure. But I think it says a lot. And your comment you just made reminded me of that dinner conversation. Nobody had a woman on the tip of their tongue. Not one. Not anybody. You know, not even bring Hillary back or at nothing. It was very different. And that could reflect maybe where the party is. Who knows? So we'll see. With that, I want to thank our loyal members, we're really grateful for you and hope that you can spread the word about not just membership, but this podcast. And with that, see you next time. Take care.